Welcome to the Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one graduate student's attempts to study for his comprehensive exams in history. So today we're going to be talking about food. And food is something that we're all a little obsessed with right now. Uh, this is the era of organic farmers markets, of community gardens, of whole foods. When you think about the food that we eat, the good food has a story to it. It's authentic, it's local, it's heirloom. You know, it has still some of the dirt from the farm on it. You meet the farmer. And when you think about the way that people eat, they have a story. Uh, people go gluten-free. They have food journeys. They go on particular diets to correct their mood, to help them with their health. We all understand that each person has this individual relationship with food, that if they can get it right, will lead them to some sort of golden time where they're you know, healthy and happy and emotionally full and wake up not tired. And we're going to talk about a time period where food was equally as important, but for very different reasons. Starvation was commonplace in the entire historical era that I study. People worried about hunger and this, this worry was real. They could starve to death. People worried about food, food purity. It wasn't worrying about whether their, their chard was organic or not. It was worrying about whether their milk was adulterated with lead, which it was. Milk was often watered down. When you water down milk, it turns a little blue. So to correct this, unscrupulous milk dealers would color their milk with, with, with lead or with, uh, with chalk. You could see this. If you, if you went to Britain in, 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 our, in our fantastic time machine, you'd notice that people were shorter. The average height of a Londoner was about three and a half inches shorter during the Victorian period than it is now. That's amazing. Three and a half inches. And that's not the only difference that you'd see. Not only were most people shorter, but you'd, you'd see a, a clear gradation of height as you went up in class. Middle class people would be slightly taller than the stunted working class folks. And then upper class people would be taller still. Contemporary estimates said that upper class people were about four inches higher than working class folks. Scurvy and rickets were really common. Scurvy, not just for pirates anymore, is caused by a lack of vitamin C. That comes from not eating your vegetables. And Victorians didn't get scurvy because they hated to eat vegetables. They got scurvy because they couldn't afford vegetables. Um, when you have scurvy, you get weak, your gums bleed, um, if it, it lasts for too long, your wounds don't heal, and you can end up dying um, from internal bleeding. Another really common uh, bit of malnutrition was rickets, which is caused by not enough vitamin D. The Victorians were prone to this uh, because they didn't eat a lot of animal fats. Um, this was, again, not because of a diet, but because animal fats were expensive. It was also because you can get vitamin D from sunlight, and in a lot of these uh, industrial towns, the coal and the coal smog and the uh, the, the the wood f the the smoke from wood fires um, gave everything a, a a permanent foggy air, which meant that people didn't get a lot of sunlight. Rickets impairs bone growth, and so it led to a lot of children getting skeletal deformities. So the Victorian diet obviously was less healthy, and. Even the ideal diets were, were not what uh, people in Oakland would consider good eating. Um, they were really big on carbs, especially with children. Children, even upper-class children, were fed on a really carb-rich diet. 
keeping kids on short rations was a, a contemporary bit of, of, of parenting advice. Um, it was supposed to teach children self-control and self-denial and also to make them not masturbate. Kids would be fed on good plain food like bread and jam, boiled puddings, milk puddings, and never fruit. Uh, fruit they were worried about because they thought that it would have a, a, an uncomfortable laxative effect. The staples for working class people were bread and beer in the south, and then in the north, potatoes and oats. And when I talk about staples, I don't just mean that this was the center of the plate, and then you'd get like some, some meat and veg every day. No, for working class people, bread and oats and potatoes were what you ate for every meal every day of the week, except for maybe a special meal on, on, on Sunday. So just imagine day in, day out, eating nothing but bread and beer, or nothing but potatoes. And you get a sense of why Victorian people were so obsessed with food. It was a really, really big problem for nursing mothers because undernourished mothers underproduced milk. And the milk alternatives at the time weren't great. Um, and so this kind of constant malnutrition can explain a little bit about why everybody was so excited when they figured out a little bit of, of, of nutritional science. In 1889, for instance, um, the London Zoo had a problem. They had lions. Great. Everybody loves lions. And the lions made cubs. Super cute. Everybody loves lion cubs even more than they love lions. But the lion cubs kept on dying. The problem was, was that the lions were being fed on lean meat. And this guy, Bland Sutton, decided to fix that. And so in addition to the lean meat, he fed them bone meal and milk, and importantly, cod liver oil. After the lions got fed on this, you know, nice fatty diet, the new lion cubs started to survive, and everybody got obsessed with cod liver oil. So if your parents or grandparents ever forced you to have cod liver oil, you can thank Bland Sutton and his miraculous saving of the lion cubs of the London Zoo. Now, one of the important things about hunger that we've touched upon is that it, it is uneven. This whole time that we're talking about a, a diet of bread and beer and potatoes and oats, the upper classes were having massive, massive feasts of multiple courses where people overrate on squab and sole and beef. So hunger is, 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 is heavily marked by class. Hunger is also heavily marked by gender. One of the masculine ideals that was motivating a lot of people at the time was the idea of the family breadwinner. Culturally, this meant that in working class families, when there was a joint of meat, it was the purview of the man first. The man of the house would get first pick of the food. And then there would be some sort of familial calculus that would show who would get next pick, maybe the, the eldest boy, and onward down to the, to the youngest child who would often just get the leavings. When young children went off to the, 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 the workforce and started bringing home a wage, they got bumped up in the family's meat calculus. They would then be able to buy ch joints of meat themselves and get first pick like the, 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 the father of the family. Hunger was also geographically uneven, and we can see this perhaps most clearly with the colonies. Um, just as the, the male breadwinner showed his legitimacy as a patriarchal uh, uh, ruler by providing his family with food, so too did colonial governments prove their legitimacy by staving off famine and ensuring that everybody had, you know, bread. 
So when there was times of illegitimacy, food was often a key political symbol. We can see this in the 18th century. In the 18th century, Britain got a new dynasty, the Hanoverians, that many people saw as illegitimate. Um, they preferred the, the Stuarts, um, whose king, King James, uh, lived over in France. Uh, we're not going to go deep into the details right now, but just think House Targaryens and House Baratheons in Game of Thrones, only without dragons, and the Hanoverians were probably the most boring political family ever on Earth. But in part because the Hanoverians were illegitimate, um, and because they were so boring, there were often these intense political rituals around their rule, and these would often involve food. So, for example, on the king's birthday, uh, lots of cities would have these amazing, gigantic pageants, um, which had food and beer and wine as heavily central elements. People would go to the public houses, eat beef, get drunk, and give toasts to the king, and this was a key way of establishing the king's authority. The king was a good king because he gave you meat. In early colonial America, similarly, governors showed, shored up their authority by public displays, displays of feeding the people. Um, when supply ships came from, from England giving much-needed grain and beer, there would be processions, prayers and sermons amongst the people on the mainland as they watched the supply ships bring the barrels of flour on shore. Perhaps the most famous story of colonial hunger comes from the first fleet that settled Australia. So Australia was first colonized uh, by convicts. Uh, it was considered basically a continental prison. And the first fleet of convicts had a terrible, very bad, awful, no good, hungry first year well, actually, first five years, um, the land that the, the British people settled turned out not to be very good for farming. The first crops failed. The second crops were very meager. So many people ended up being weak from hunger that only one-third was able to work. Rations were cut. Rations were cut again. Rations were cut a third time. Supply ships were sent out to South Africa to pick up grain and bread. This supply ship hit a reef. Of course, the most important colonial famines were in the middle of the 19th century, and, and those were the Irish and the Indian famines. These spurred the national movements in both countries. In both cases, the British government promised that colonization was good for the people who were colonized, that the oversight, the liberal government, the free trade, the science, the genius of, of, of British government would make up for the, the downsides of colonization. And in both cases, the famines revealed instead the callousness of the system. Both were such important moments that we're going to save them for a, a future episode. So thanks very much for joining us again today. Uh, I have to thank uh, Jonathan Lear. His track, Upside Down, Backwards and Inside Out, is the intro and our outro music. If you want to buy it, you can find his Bandcamp and give him money. Please do. Also, if you want to help me, um, we're now up on iTunes. Please subscribe and give us a rating and give us a review. It's really, really, really helpful. It's what tells iTunes that uh, people are actually listening. You can also go to historian.live and see our show notes, which will contain some pictures. Hopefully I'll get a picture of the uh, beautiful London Zoo lion cubs. And it also contains a book list that tells you where I got all these delicious snacks. Thank you so much. Uh, and I hope to see you tomorrow.